When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, welcome to the Snooker Scene Podcast. I'm Dave Hendon. I'm delighted to say my guest this week is Neil Folds, former world number three, and now a very popular television pundit. Neil, I always, uh, I'm interested how players get into snooker. We know that Stephen Hendry's father bought him a table out of the blue, but of course your father was a player, so I guess you were introduced to it at a, at a very young age. Yeah, I was. Um, it was different for me in that regard, actually, because uh, my dad used to play. He was a very good amateur player back in, the, in his time, and he would have been the kind of guy, if the game had have been opened up at that stage, he may have done reasonably well. He, you know, I'd be foolish to say that he would have been you know, a top eight player or 16 player, but he was a very decent amateur. And his day, like so many others of that time, was a little too late when they turned professional. It was never quite going to happen uh, for him. But I used to go to all his matches uh, from the age of about 12, 13, watch him, root for him in, in all of those games. I wasn't all that good at snooker. And I guess I fit into the category somebody who got better but wasn't initially very talented. I was a li- little bit of a standing joke at first. But, you know, oh, that's Jeff's boy, you know, bless him. He tries his best, a little podgy little lad. He's not much good. <laughs> but I did get better. Uh, and my improvement came at the be- about the age of 15, 16, when I won the, uh, what they used to call the, the London and Home Counties Boys section. I don't think you can call it that anymore. Um, and played at the Commonwealth Club in Blackpool uh, against... The likes of John Parrott, that's the first time I met him, age 15, and of course I've known him ever since, you're talking 38 years or something now ago, um, and I met a lot of guys then, so gradually I started to get a little bit better uh, from those early stages, and you know, I improved quite rapidly actually, a lot of the guys that were in front of me uh, those junior days, I passed them about the age of 16, 17. Uh, so that's kind of how things happened for me, except Jimmy White, who, of course, who I did rub shoulders with, and I've known all those years, and I never quite got past him, but a lot of the other guys I did. Of course, these days, a kid of 12, they can turn the TV on most, most weeks of the year now and watch snooker, but it wasn't like that then, was it? You know, there was pop black, but there wasn't yes. a lot of other TV snooker, so your introduction to the game, it was through the junior scene, it wasn't as high profile then, certainly, as it, as it is now. So no, that's right. I had good good people around me that were big snooker people, like uh, obviously my dad, who's been involved uh, all those years. Uh, Ron Gross, who uh, anyone from the London area and you know maybe other areas would remember Ron as a great amateur player himself. He's no longer with us. He died a few years back over Christmas a few years ago. Um, but he knew everybody. He was uh, somebody that got me into it. I mean, when I left 
left school, I had a job for a year just under working in an insurance office, which didn't really suit me. I, I didn't mind it, but I wanted to play snooker, but I wasn't quite good enough. And I used to find at the age of 17 that I was coming back from a day's work over in Shepherd's Bush on the Tube, um, only playing maybe at the weekends. I was too tired, just didn't, didn't seem the right thing to do. I didn't drive then, so I'd play at weekends. And at that point, I mean, I'd known Ron, and I did play in his club in Nice in the Rongo Snooker Centre, but... I got to the final of the World Junior Championships despite only playing at weekends in the Isle of Wight. Uh, I beat John Parrott along the way and Dino Kane, still lifelong friends actually, uh, lost in the final to a youngster called Terry Whitthread who was a really good player from London. He was uh, somebody that used to hang around with Jimmy, very decent player, doesn't play anymore. Uh, but Ron thought that was a good opportunity to get me out of my day job if you like. He would said he'd give me uh, it matched what I was earning at this insurance company which wasn't much, it was probably about, uh, I think it was about Two and a half thousand quid a year, whatever it would have been back then, um, and I would work in his club in a couple of evenings a week, and I had free practice. And I think it was good that I did that year's work because it really made me understand what I did want to do. I didn't, I wasn't going to mess around and, and turn up there and play cards and all the things that people did. When I got the chance, having seen the other side, not that work is that <laughs> dreadful, but it, I didn't really want to do that anymore. So I took the chance, grasped it, and I did improve quickly. And how did you turn professional? Because it, the system has changed so much over the years. What, how did you get into the to pro ranks? You had to win something. Uh, you, you couldn't just uh, uh, become a professional, pay your way in or whatever it took. Um, I knew everybody. That helped, I guess. I mean, uh, I, I was friends with the likes of John Virgo and, and Willie and all these guys on Terry Griffiths. I've known them all since my dad's era. But ultimately, I had to win a big event because there was a committee, and I think Virgo was on it, uh, which decided who would be professional and who wouldn't. But if you won one of the big festivals, uh, it would get you in. And I remember thinking I had to win the English Amateur Championship or the, the Pontins Festival in Prestatin or uh, the one that, uh, that came up in Sina Warren for Warners, which was, um, it was high profile. I mean, it, it, the, and I remember losing, trying to get my ticket, losing in the, I think, the semi-finals in the, the, the Prestatin Festival, which was very tough to win because there was literally seven or 800 entries. I had to start from scratch. You had to beat professionals along the way. I lost in the semi-finals, and we were going straight down to Sina Warren in, in Hailing Island to, for the next one. And I was pretty deflated, thinking, well, that's my chance gone now. I don't see how, how I can go through all that again. But I played even better the second week, and I, I beat Willie, and I beat John Berger, getting a small start. And I beat um, uh, Danny Fowler in the right. final, who was uh, trying to come through at the time. And, um, and I won it. So really, they couldn't not pick me, although... I don't know, you couldn't just turn professional, basically. I remember asking John Virgo, I said, listen, I've won this tournament now, what do you think? And he looked straight through me, he said, well, he said, you've got a chance. He said, but don't, uh, don't sweat too much in the paddock, you know, and uh, <laughs> lose, lose your race down at the start, but we'll decide. And, of course, I got in as a professional, and, and that was that. And, and I was quite young, it was early 84. And, and what was it like? Suddenly you're a professional, this is what you wanted. Did it sort of match up to what you'd hoped in that first season? Well, I'd actually been to a lot of those matches. My dad had already been a professional, so I'd been to all the venues, all the, the minor venues that he'd played at, and he sometimes toiled away in qualifiers. So I kind of already knew what was required of me, and I already knew that there were a large bulk of players I fancied beating already. Let's be honest, back in the day there was quite a bit of dead wood around. A lot of guys getting, getting old that weren't great players. No, no need to mention any names, they were, they were good snooker people, but um, I knew that there were there was chances for me to do well quite quickly, and the qualifiers then, in fairness, were nowhere near uh, like they were in recent years, and definitely not like they are now. I mean, I qualified to get to the Crucible, 
uh, in my first year, and I remember beating Doug French, Les Dodd, and Jim Meadowcroft. Jim Meadowcroft sadly recently mm. passed away. And you look back, I mean, Jim was actually a really good player, but I and a few others of my era were already a little bit in front of those. It's a bit like when, um, uh, if I could compare myself to Ronnie O'Sullivan, which would be a bit <laughs> tough, but uh, uh, my, my point being when John Higgins and Ronnie uh, and uh, Stephen Lee and Mark Williams turned pro, they were already better than most of those. It was on a minor scale, lesser scale, how it was for the likes of myself. We talk uh, at the moment about Peter and Oliver Lyons. A lot of people are saying, you know, when they're going to play each other in a professional tournament. But you did play your dad. What was that like? It pro- probably difficult for both of you. Horrible, mm. actually. We played twice. Uh, oddly enough, the only time my dad got to a uh, well, he got to a venue twice. Actually, um, the first time he got there, he qualified for the UK for the for the Guildhall last thirty-two, um, and. I qualified and we played on adjoining tables. He played Steve Davis, who made a bit of a mess of him. I think he'd been in 9-1 or something. And I played David Taylor. So he couldn't enjoy playing at that venue because I was on the next table. He wanted to look around the, the barrier. And then we played in the only other tournament he qualified. He beat Bill Werbenick to get a, a what they used to call a ranking point. Then, and that one point was quite precious if he didn't have any. Um, and then he, it was me in the next round. And it was the tournament I won, actually, the international. So in my first match in the international, I had to play my dad. It was, it was rotten. I beat him 5-0. And I just basically had to put him out of his misery because I could see he was hating it. And it, kind of the fact that I couldn't really get my mind on it, I think he was worried that he might accidentally beat me. And, <laughs> and then he, he couldn't really go any further. Mm. You know? um, but, uh, yeah, we played twice as well. Another time we played was in the English professional uh, down in um, Redwood Lodge in, in uh, Bristol. And the whole family came down there. My mum came along to watch. She never used to come to watch uh, because it was, and I beat him again, but it, you know, it was strange because he would always come into my dressing room in the, in the interval and um, encourage me because my dad was always my, you know, the man, he's been the man that encourages me in everything, but especially in snooker. So he still came in there and, and talked, us, talked through the match and, you know, it was odd really. Uh, when they do meet, the, the, the Lions family, uh, they won't enjoy it. Mm. They will not enjoy the experience. It's something they would need to get over with quickly and I suspect uh, uh, Oliver might win. Mm. Let's go back then to your first season. You, as you mentioned, you qualified for the Crucible. You drew Alex Higgins, yeah. the great star of, of the 1980s, people's champion and all that, former champion, and you beat him. I mean, that's some way to sort of announce yourself on, on the stage. What are your memories of that? Yeah, I do remember it very clearly because I, I was, I'd been, again, I'd been to the Crucible before 79 to watch uh, John Virgo play because uh, we, he was based in London at the time, so I knew what the Crucible was all about. Um, it was an evening session followed by a morning session, as I remember, which was a bit odd. I don't, you don't see, I don't think they have many of those, and I was 5-4 up, I think, at the end of the evening session, and of course there's a few little stirrings that there could be a shock but I kind of hadn't really thought about that I think I'd done the right thing I hadn't been getting too far ahead of myself and I beat Alex 10-9 and it all went live as was often the case back then uh, more so maybe than now um, on the BBC it was a big shock Uh, Alex was fine with me I mean he he really was He, he was good and I remember things changed I didn't really quite know how to celebrate I've seen it on the... YouTube since, and I was a bit embarrassed, a bit of a sheepish look up at the audience, no sort of fist pumping or anything, I wanted to, but I was a bit bashful really, but uh, yes, it was a big deal for me beating Alex, and uh, when you look back at it, and you can see the footage, it was David Icke was the man who was the presenter then, and that's a bit surreal, isn't it? (laughs) He's gone into other avenues since. He certainly has. (laughs) But of course, you know, like you say, high profile, you've beaten one of the favourites of the tournament, one of the favourites in the game, and I guess now suddenly the press want to know about you, and you've got attention, how did you sort of cope with that? 
Well, it wasn't always easy. Um, at that tournament, I actually lost uh, in the next round to Doug Mountjoy, who I, I did fancy beating, but he, he was a very good player. You know, people don't realise guys like that were, were seriously good match players. And I, he, he put me away, actually, uh, pretty well in that next round and got through. I mentioned it to Doug, actually, a couple of years ago at the seniors. Didn't remember anything about it. Didn't think we'd ever played before. So he doesn't he doesn't remember it like I do, clearly. Uh, yeah, I think it did. You know, I, I was on the up as a player, no doubt about it. Um, I didn't really love the publicity, I don't think. I think I was a little bit shy towards it, and uh, maybe if I'd have soaked it up a bit better, it might have stood me in better stead. Well, on the table, your, your career took off, and we look at the 86-87 season, that's when you won your, your first title, as you mentioned, the international. You were a UK Championship runner-up, British Open runner-up, World Championship semi-finals. I mean, that, that was really you know, your most successful season. What do you remember about winning, winning the tournament first? I do remember a lot about that. Um, beating Cliff in the, in the final, Cliff Thorburn, who I'd had a couple of um, matches with previously, and I think it, well, it, I'd realised what a tough player he was. But I was knocking in long balls. That was my strength then. I used to knock everything in at long range. I didn't make breaks like they do now, of course, but I could knock in long balls for fun. And uh, uh, that was a great season for me, uh, winning that, starting it off really well. I had a, a few friends came down and watched me play, and we had a, a nice evening of it. I you know, didn't celebrate too hard, but... You know, things went on from there, and I played well at, uh, at the Hexagon for the Grand Prix. Lost actually to Rex Williams that year. He was playing brilliantly, eight six uh, up, and lost nine eight in that semi final. Then I think I played my best snooker, oddly enough, in the UK that year when I got to the final. I had good wins against John Parrott, Jimmy White, Cliff Thorne. I was playing brilliantly, you know. And um, in the final, I was uh, put in my place by Steve over two days. Uh, I was in front on the first day, and he beat me. Not quite with a session to spare, but the most part of which. And then I realised, um, you know, that I moved up a level there playing him over the best of 31 as it was then. It was uh, a match too many for me, I think. How good was, was Davis? You know, a lot of people listening to this would never have seen him play and, and, and maybe think, well, maybe the standard wasn't, you know, as high, all that high. But, you know, he was so dominant. What was he like to play at that time? He was tough to play. Uh, he was very good. The standard around him wasn't always that high. And, you know, and he raised the, the bar without a doubt. Um, Steve was a great player. Uh, I think he's in my top three of all time um, behind um, O'Sullivan and Hendry. Um, there's no question. I mean, it's not whether, whether his best form would have would have made him a top three player now. I don't think that matters. I think he, he was a great, great player, great ambassador, worked hard and was hungry for success. He didn't care about the money, uh, which is a good thing because it meant he just wanted to win snooker matches and Hendry was the same. So, you know, Steve is, in my opinion, the, the, the true legend of, of all of them, really. So at this time, you're still in your early 20s and, and you, yeah. you're having the success, you get into finals, you've won the tournament. There must have been people saying, you know, this lad's a, a future world champion, he's going to maybe be world number one. How difficult was it to sort of shut out not only other people's expectations, but maybe some that you had yourself as well? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I don't know about future world champion. Obviously, uh, there was, uh, I, I nearly, well, I got to the semi finals that year, lost to Joe uh, that same season, rather. Um, I think it fell apart for me a little bit after that. You know, I had a few off the table issues going on and. Um, you know, a marriage broke up, and, and that was kind of um, public knowledge at the time. So I took a bit of a hammering, I think. Um, I don't really regret anything that happened. Obviously, there were one or two people, I mean, that uh, saw things in a, in, in a different way to what they were. Mm. You know, I, got, I was quite stressed, I was struggling, and uh, there was things going on in my life. And 
my career took a bit of a nosedive for a, a couple of seasons. It went from world number three. And in those days, you held your ranking over for a long time. So the next season, I was still world number three because they didn't change them like they do now. Um, I'd end up down at 20 in the world in a couple of years and was struggling to win any matches. But then I, I think, in a way, the second wave of my career, I, I was actually a better player, more rounded. I got up into the top eight again for a few years. I think I got up to world number five. And I kind of appreciated it more and believed a lot more in myself because I'd become, um, I was growing up and my game was better. I probably wasn't such a good long potter and did all the, 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 the things that, uh, I couldn't do all the things I could do before whereby you play without fear. You know, I knew about losing at that point, I knew what it was like so I was on the back foot a little bit but I ended up a better player I think the second time round. What was it like to be a top player in the 80s? You know we have this idea it was the golden period and snooker was everywhere but what was it actually like to be there as one of the top players of that time? I loved it. Um, probably, again, it's something that if I could do it now, I would have enjoyed it more. But I was with Barry Hearn, and we t- went on tours. I spent a lot of time with, you know, with, with Steve and with Jimmy and, and uh, Terry Griffiths, who's a good friend of mine, all of them. And Tony Mio, who we don't see in the game anymore. And we had some great trips, and I think it helped me build my status in the game, just being with these guys. Um, so it was, it was a great time. I mean, it, you know, it's easy to look back and think everything was better in your day. I'm not saying that's the case, but we had good times, no question. And, uh, you know, I left my contract with Barry a year early. There's no two ways about it. It didn't end perfectly, but I've never lost friendship with Barry, and I see him and enjoy his company now. I actually had a nice chat with him when I was over uh, working for Eurosport on the, um, the tournament in Berlin. I had a lovely chat with him for about half an hour. And, uh, yeah, I mean, my, my uh, association at the time with, with Matram... It didn't go sour, we just, it just didn't work out for either of us. And uh, I went solo after that and my dad looked after me. Just uh, before you joined Barry, he had uh, the record out, the uh, Chas and Dave Snooker Loopy, <laughs> which, was, which was a big hit. And, and then, inevitably, there was a follow-up, which you were on, called the, yes. Rom- called the Romford Rap, which wasn't a big hit. What, what, no. what do you remember about that? That was dreadful, wasn't it? So <laughs> it was, I mean, you should never go back to the world more than once, I think, on things like that. Um, well, we had fun making it. We came back from China, actually, uh, in the morning, and then we had to go to the... Uh, um, what, what would they call that place? Not the Alley Pally, somewhere like that in London. Anyway, um, we spent the day filming it, and uh, Chaz and Dave were there. And in the evening, we had to perform it live, and it's all a bit surreal, really, because I'm a, a bit of a music fan, actually. And it was a bit not old. that sort of music necessarily. Not necessarily, <laughs> but um, we had fun doing it. It was never going to be much of a success. I don't think we made any money out of it, actually. Aside from that, it was an experience. It was, there was a big video, wasn't there? Like, you, it was a big snooker table on a yes. stage and you were all dressed in like different coloured waistcoats. Did anyone at any point think, this is a bit odd? Well, I certainly did. <laughs> I was wearing the yellow waistcoat, which didn't suit me, and Steve was wearing his usual black waistcoat. I think he didn't have to even have one that was um, you know, from, the, from the props. You know, It went well. But uh, Look, it was good fun, but it was never going to be um, the same as the first one, and I guess the first one did very well. It was just a novelty record, wasn't it? And you should never follow those up, I don't think. But were you comfortable with that side of it, the, the sort of personality side? Because a lot of players today, certainly, they'd just rather play than, than necessarily have to project themselves. But in the 80s, you kind of had to because you, you were in demand. I wasn't comfortable with it, no. I have to say, I didn't really like it. It wasn't me. I only wanted to play snooker. Um, and then, you know, I kind of became a little bit withdrawn from the game when things went wrong for me when I first was successful. I just didn't... I kind of slightly in a way resented the game and thought well this game has made me a bit unhappy actually but um, 
you know, as you get older, you realise, as I say, the second time around, I thought, well, I've got to knuckle down to this. You've only got so long doing one thing. Because you do believe that you're there for life. I'm, I understand the way that young people think in the game now, that you get this opportunity and you're going to be playing it all your life. But, you know, I can assure you that with very few exceptions, um, you've got a lifespan at this game. And when it's over, you've got to um, find something else to do. What are the best venues you played at? Obviously, the Crucible, everyone knows, is special. But apart from there, maybe what, what, what venues have you, do you look back on and think, yeah, that was a that was a great place to play? Well, obviously, the Conference Centre I liked. It's a shame they knocked it down. Actually, the Masters has never been quite the same. Although I think the Ali Pali is a great venue now for it. Uh, that is nice. Um, but uh, I think Goffs. Everyone would say this. Anyone that's played there would agree that it's a great venue. I played. Alex Higgins there once, and that was an experience. It was the year that he'd hurt his leg, and he won it. He'd knocked me out early on. I thought, well, this is rock bottom. I've lost to a man on one leg <laughs> in front of a lot of fans of his. I think my dad was the only one cheering for me. And he went on to meet Hendry in the final. That, that, that was a, a great venue, I think. Um, others, I've got memories of, of, uh, of Preston, and I know that um, part of the tour is going to go back there, the seniors this year. Not all good memories. I mean, uh, I used to find it a bit depressing walking through that bus shelter in <laughs> mid-November, actually, to, uh, to, to play my matches there. So uh, it's, it's, a, it's a place that I've got a lot of memories at, but not all good. And the Crucible, can you explain to people listening what it's like to, to walk through the curtains onto, onto that stage? Yes, um, I, I found it. Again, I've got very good and very bad memories of the Crucible. I remember one year... Uh, I mean, I remember that, that match against Alex Higgins very vividly and, you know, as I say, all of a sudden the attention is on you. But I also remember one year I had to win my first round match. I think it was Wayne Jones of Wales who I was playing. I was probably fancied to beat and I had to beat him and I think I was 3-1 down and losing and I put my fist through the... the uh, broke the glass in one of the changing rooms. Didn't really mean to do it, actually. I, you know, I obviously wasn't happy. Smashed all the glass and, and you think, hang on a minute, you know, this is only a game of snooker, really, but you, you can... You can lose your rag and I, you can lose your perspective sometimes at that place as I say it's got good and, and one or two uh, memories that are not so good I like going back there now though and <laughs> it's a different story now I'm not playing you've already said you know eventually all careers going to decline you, you start to slip down the rankings you're spending a lot of time at qualifiers what's that like when you've been at the top and you've been at all these great venues and suddenly you're at the Norbrek or wherever well, how, how easy or difficult is it to adjust to that I think it's difficult at first because you know, you want to play some of the guys that you're playing at venues because you feel that you would probably beat them there more so than in a, a small cubicle or a small area at the Norbrecht Castle. But after a year or two of playing in those qualifiers, you become almost accustomed to it, and then that becomes your little domain. And then qualifying for a venue, you become the nervous mm. one. I found that later on in my career, that I became quite a decent player in the qualifiers. It just It's like a, the career takes a, a different phase where you fancy doing well, but... In the last couple of years, I, I packed up, um, it was 2003, J- January 2013, I lost in the Worlds. My last season, I was dropping down and I was going to go off the tour and I wasn't playing very well. And I just started to do a few other little things outside of the game, a little bit of work in, in, for a bookmaker and, and, and just getting into the broadcasting side of it a bit. And I wasn't putting in the hours and I'd lost my game a little bit. I knew it that year, and it's like they always say, it's a bit of a cliche, but you know when it's time to walk away, and I knew because I couldn't play to, that, to the level that would even keep me on the tour. So I thought I'd better get out of this. And as much as I love the game, it was the biggest relief ever for me when I decided I lost in the World Championship qualifiers, and that queue was going away. I didn't want anyone to know. I didn't want to make a big deal over it because I don't really think anyone cares that much if you're playing your last match. So I just walked away and... Uh, 
I immediately felt a bit better about things because I didn't have to worry about what was happening with my queue action and why the queue wasn't going through straight and putting in hours of practice in dark rooms, doing lineups and stuff that I didn't really want to do anymore because I've been doing that for 25 years. So there were no regrets when the, when the following season started and you know you saw everyone was heading off to qualifying. You no sort of feelings that I really wish I was still there. I can honestly say I have never regretted it. I did actually play in the World Seniors once and I regretted that because I think that was a mistake. <laughs> I remember I, it. <laughs> yeah, I lost to Dino Kane. It was fun, but I didn't want to put in the hours and I thought this is a one-off. And, and when Jason Ferguson phoned me and asked me to play, I think I was I'd had a couple of beers. I was in the pub or something, and I said, "Yes, <laughs> of course I'll play." Jason, he said, uh, "You'll you know you'll go in as a seed. Great idea." And then when when it came to it, I didn't want to do it. So I have absolutely no regrets about not playing snooker. I don't miss playing. I love the game and I love watching it, and I can follow it better now with more clarity. I think now that I'm not playing it, it doesn't clog my mind up about my own game. So the media side, you know, you're well known now as a, as a television pundit. How did that kind of start for you? I was lucky. Um, for, for Sky, um, a guy called Roger Wilkinson, who was at Sky, he phoned me up one day and he said, we want you, someone to do some work in Aberdeen. And, and I was already doing a little bit of something else then on, on a, in sport, just a little bit of stuff, for, as I say, uh, for a bookmaker. But I, I, he said, I know you've done it before. And of course, I hadn't done it before. I don't know where he got that idea. I said, yeah, I have. So I did a bit of commentary. I think I worked with Phil Yates, actually, the first couple of matches, and uh, with Clive. And... I enjoyed it. I really enjoyed it, um, being away and doing something in snooker that didn't involve me waiting for the next practice session to start and all that. I enjoyed being at the venues in a different capacity. You don't, uh, sportsmen who get into broadcasting don't necessarily get any sort of lessons how to do it or anything. No. It's usually just you get handed the microphone. So, so how did you sort of take to it? I mean, was, did you find it difficult or did you find it you were a natural at it? No, I don't think so. Uh, I'm still definitely not a natural at it. Um, I think, as I say, I work, I've done some stuff doing it's sort of broadcasting on racing and greyhound racing and stuff like that. So I was lucky to be around people that that were good at it and had been trained and it kind of, if anything, maybe a little bit rubbed off on me, although I wouldn't say my voice is particularly uh, as good as, as some people that, that are involved in that sort of thing. So I tried, basically. I tried my best to, to learn how to do it the right way. And, you know, I do also figure that, you know, you've, you've got to be quite measured in what you say. I mean, Clive is the expert at that saying in not so many words. And you're very good at it, Dave, actually. You know, you only say what needs to be said. And that, that's... Um, that's a good way of thinking. Thank you. Um, but I think actually what, what shows you, because you're a big cricket fan, aren't you? And, Very uh, much. And I think you can tell you've watched a lot of cricket, because for me, the guys, particularly on Sky and, and, and in the past on the BBC, the, the ex-cricketers are fantastic. Yeah. You know, you look now at Atherton, the Sane, Shane Warne and these guys. But what they say is worth listening to. Do you think you sort of, in some ways, are channeling those? You've not quite done the Richie Benno thing of looking down the camera yet, but, but you, <laughs> I, you get the, I get the feeling you've sort of almost subconsciously sort of taken all that on, on board. I love cricket. It's always been in, in my life. I, uh, as on the radio, all the people that did radio commentary, and you're right, they're very clever guys, and if I could be anywhere near up to that level of, of, of saying the right thing and uh, it would be great I, I, I do think that uh, they're quite eloquent aren't they these people and uh, they do it, do it very well they're an intelligent bunch most of the cricketers I, I love the game I'm not, I was never very good at it I was never allowed to play very much and when I was with Barry he said you're not allowed to play cricket because you break your fingers but he still used to have the odd game without telling him um, but no it's, it's a game I really love and uh, you're right I think that uh, certain aspects of it you know, lend themselves to, to commentary and all of that is it tough sometimes to be in the box, maybe at the Crucible or another venue, and, and, and look down and think, oh, I wish I was still out there? Never think it. No. I've never felt that, no. Um, 
nothing can quite replicate the feeling of winning a match, uh, but I must say that, um, because all the years I played, that feeling when you've potted the winning ball and you may be clearing the last few colours up and you know you've won, and you, that's a great feeling. Any snooker player will tell you that. I, I honestly do not miss playing, and, and that's the truth, and I've never had any desires to make any form of uh, pointless comeback <laughs> <laughs> well, well, speaking of which, I mean, I, I, we both know a few sort of ex-players, and they do they do dwell on things that you know the one that got away and, and, and matches they've lost and have regrets. But I get the feeling you you don't. You're, you're actually satisfied. You had your playing career. Now you've got another career, and, and you're just getting on with it. I do feel like that. Um, anyone that still wants to play snooker, good luck to them. You know, uh, we, we know, you know Mike Hallett is, is is interested. Tony Noll, they still like playing, and and there's nothing wrong with that. A lot of the Welsh players still play in the leagues. And the like, um, an old friend of mine, Patsy Fagan, who has been out of the game a long time, and I don't honestly think Patsy always enjoyed himself when he was playing. That the the, um, the spotlight and the the limelight didn't really suit him, and but now he plays local league snooker and quite enjoys himself. So anyone that does it, good luck to them, and uh, if whatever it is that keeps you going. Would you have any advice for any young players now? It's a very busy calendar. They're they're flying here, there, and everywhere. There's a, a lot of snooker to be played. What what would you say to sort of a, a young player now, twenty year old coming into the game? Well, I think it'd be nice just to soak it all up, all the moments, because the travelling must be quite tiring. And I, th- I think a lot of people say, "Oh, these guys don't know they're born doing snooker," but, but they it's tough. I mean, I've seen tweets in the last two or three weeks, guys coming back from uh, from Darshing who lower rank players, and they've you see a tweet that says, I'm really looking forward to going, can't wait to get on the flight. <laughs> and then about four days later, I see a tweet that says, get me home. Mm. And then you see another tweet 36 hours later which says, I've just arrived back at the house. Anyone that thinks that's easy mm. is a mug. I don't know. I think, I think you, you've, you've really got to soak it all up. I mean, I didn't really um, go out and travel and, and, and look at the places that we, we were at. I often... I mean, we went to China and there was a trip to the Great Wall of China. I didn't want to go. Why wouldn't I want to go there? In the end, Barry said, you're coming, get on the coach, you're going. It was brilliant. You know, it's good to soak it all up. I don't think it would be fair for me to say go out and and travel when um, at these venues to a young player because I don't think it's quite that easy to do it. Most of the time you're just at the venues. You don't even leave the hotel if the venue's in the same place. Difficult to give advice. What I would say, the only advice I would say is that you'll... You might regret you didn't enjoy it more when it's over. Mm. OK, well, it's over now for us. Uh, Neil, that's the end of the podcast. Thanks so much for your company. And uh, I can, I'm sure I speak for most snooker fans when I say you are one of those pundits who, when you talk on the TV, we do listen. And thanks a lot for your company. You're very kind. Thanks, Dave. And thanks, everyone, for listening. Sports Social Podcast Network. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather, now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. 
No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.